Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm Michaela Pauchner, Managing Editor at No-Till Farmer. In today's episode, we're sharing the October Ask the Operator webinar with 2023 Conservation Ag Operator Fellow Lauren Steinlogge. The No-Till Innovator from West Union, Iowa, gives us a harvest update and answers the audience's many cover crop questions. Well, good morning, everybody, and thanks for joining us again. Uh, as we wander down this journey we've been doing this year, hope we haven't bored you yet. Uh, told Michaela to make sure we have plenty of questions today because my brain is running 100 miles an hour as usual right now. So good to see people on here from around the world. I see we got Netherlands, France. Uh, where else am I seeing? Iowa. Iowa. <laughs> If you do want to ask questions, get your hand up or we'll open up the floor and you can ask questions. Uh, I know Michaela asked how far we are in harvest right now. We're 50% on corn. Corn yields are very respectable for the year we put them through. Uh, if I look right, we've had 10 inches of moisture since planting, which is about uh, probably 15 under normal. What's our first question here? Are you faring better than neighbors in drought? I would say definitely yes. That's probably why we're in no hurry on soybeans right now. I mean, we were running uh, beans the last couple of days for neighbors and custom work, and uh, that's all done. We've got my beans left. I pulled into my beans. We went from 10% beans up to, well, we had 10% to 20%. So I just, we could have probably blended them, but uh we had so many yellow beans, you know, butter beans and stuff like that. We pulled out corn, the rest of it, I'm in no hurry. The first half went for uh, to feedlot, ground as ear corn. And uh, cover crop wise, we have every acre seeded already this year. First time I could say that. We've had that done by October 1st in a long time. One thing I would say is I think already we might have uh, learned we're making a we made one major mistake already on our seed mix. I didn't factor in that we had uh, a residual product on our soybeans this year early, and with the minimal rain and that, uh, some of the covers are struggling. Should have thought of that sooner, but I way my season's been going this year. I don't have much time to focus on the farm and. Uh, Got my cover crop seed from the same guy I got uh, chemicals and that from, so I was hoping he would, uh, he usually watches out for that stuff, but I guess it's lesson learned. We didn't even think of uh, stuff like that, but uh, kind of reassuring this year, first time I've used Equip or uh, PFI's cover crop program, because we did try a lot of new things on the cover crop side this fall. We called an audible there going into fall, I've seen the weather pattern changing, so we had majority of ours flowing on with the drones. And uh, probably one thing we are seeing, reason we changed a lot of the mixes and that is on our CRI covers, we're starting to see like a nematode issue starting to pop up. That we lost several acres of rye that was supposed to be relay rye. If you watch the planning video, that field got terminated. The one right across the road got terminated. Just for the simple fact, all of a sudden we had uh, what I would call self-terminating cereal rye because it just started dying. And then we ran nematode tests and all that and started seeing that we do have a nematode coming up. And I'm starting to wonder if that's as we're bringing corn back into the rotation some here, we're starting to see some issues there. So we went the drones there 
reason we ran the drones was we had a very heavy brassica mix in that to get the glucothiosinosides or whatever that is that's supposed to help control nematodes. So there's plenty of food for thought. What's Bob's question? Um, he was asking about how you applied the cover crop. How did we? All drone? Yeah, we had uh, well, majority of it was with the drones. We flew a uh, five pound mix <clears throat> on our soybean acres. That was uh, camelina, four pounds, half a pound of rape, and half a pound of uh, mustard. That put us over a million seeds per acre. And where, where it took, we've got a very nice stand already. You know, and it was a perfect window there. Like all mine, we had three inches of rain within a week, week and a half after, or during application, I guess I should say it that way. You know, that, that was kind of the surprising part. The, the neighbor field that did the same thing, he only had like half inch rain. He's got a beautiful stand where ours is kind of sporadic. And as I started looking and thinking, that's when it kind of hit that we had the dual. And then like on corn acres going to soybeans next year, we just flew a rye on with the drones too. And then I, one of the farms took ear corn off. We I rolled that one flat and then uh, we drilled the cover crop or the cereal rye in there for relay possibly. But uh, that was the first field my son-in-law's ever drilled. And he was all nervous about it. And I told him, hey, at this point it's cover crop. If it looks good, we'll call it a relay crop. If not, it'll be a cover crop. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I keep telling everybody I'm probably a little too open what we all tell everybody what we're all doing here, but I want people to understand that we are in flux right now. You know, for the last two, three years, I've been talking about the transition. Well, some of it is starting to happen finally. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, geez, I thought this was happening. I was like, well, some of this stuff, we've got to just take our time and ease into it. You know, the way we farm is a little different and get people to understand that takes a little thought process and help people understand that and I'm not going to force anybody into it I guess and just we're going to take it as we go and uh, you know for me personally if you didn't know as as of this spring we took on a few consultant gigs and then I run a farmer trial network for Agventure Alliance and uh, farming has kind of taken the back seat for me but I you know I told my wife one day I still love farming but I'm getting to love not farming just as much as I love farming so and uh, the way you know the reason I'm going to be as open and honest about all that is I've seen too many people ride it over the cliff and they get to hate what they're doing. I don't hate what I'm doing. You know, I, I still love what I'm doing and my body's telling me to change. I've always been one that's not afraid to embrace change. So here we are. So sorry, I went on a tirade there, Bob, <laughs> but you, you're used to me. <laughs> well, I'll follow up on that. Um, in terms of your son-in-law running the drill for the first time, what were what were his concerns and what were the tips that you gave him to make him successful with that? Well, the biggest thing is they're so worried about uh, not pleasing a guy, I guess I'll put it that way. And anybody that knows me, it's like, hey, well, let's do the best we can and we'll make it happen. But, uh, you know, some of this that's happening right now has been building for the last four or five years. You know, when I sold my other drill, that was kind of the mindset why I hurry up and built the box drill because I wanted something simple that anybody can hop in and go. I mean, even if my wife wants to hop in and run it, she can now. And uh, <clears throat> the neat part is like uh, Joe, he went to GIS school and all that stuff. And I mean, he's a shop foreman at the DOT now, but uh, 
you know, his, his education is GIS. So it's like running monitors and all that stuff is kind of right up his alley. So here he was worried about nothing. Okay. Yeah. Now, now he's learned that uh, turning the auto steer on and that's no different than what he's been trained to do. You know, he can run a dozer with auto grade and all that stuff, but uh, the stuff we're doing on the farm is not any different. And, you know, it's basically the same technology, just in a different format and package. Sunday there, we got him running. We had, we were drilling, had another kid in here drilling wheat at the same time. I, I was just having fun being a tender and you know, my combine was, you know, my combine was running 20 miles away and two drills running and trying to keep everybody going was kind of entertaining. So, Emily, do you like the drone cover crop seeding? How is it working versus other seeding methods? I would say the drones, we've been using them for, I think, four or five years now. I like what the opportunity is. I mean, but you, you've got to have, you know, it's, I guess, probably the best way to put it is I've always said, you know, I want to have the answer before the question's asked. And watching the forecast and all that was the perfect time. That That's why we're comfortable pulling the trigger that quick on a few things. You know, we know the seed suppliers we can work with who will get us seed quick. So we don't make the decisions until we see the window open. And like, like I said, you know, we, we nailed the window. And uh, the day they got done here, well, I bet I've had 10 phone calls calling, wondering who I had in. How do we get a hold of them? And it's like, come on, folks, you missed the you missed the window now. <laughs> you know, the bean, the leaves. You know, the last field they did for the neighbor there, the leaves were dropping already. And you know, I was shocked how good the his stand is for a half inch of rain. So we got lucky on that one. But the rest of it, I went out and checked. Uh, well, the other field that we harvested deer corn on. Well, the drones were heading out there, and the guys called me and said they're starting to chop. I was like, well, we better switch fields there because drones with choppers in the field probably wouldn't have been good at the, that time. But, uh, you know, they, they chopped it, and the next day the drones went out there. I could have easily went out there with the drone, but uh, for what the drones were charging me, I didn't figure I could run a drill this year. And, uh, you know, as I said, my focus is on other avenues and, you know, 13 to $15 an acre for a drone, and it's done. You know, we saved the one field. We did do that with the drill, but other than that, it looked like it worked pretty good other than the herbicide issue. So, so uh, just to follow up on that question, what is the ideal window for the seeding with the drone? Uh, for me on soybeans, I want the leaves yellowing, but not dropping yet. And that, that was a very big challenge this year with all the, you know, we, we went a little earlier than I probably should have, but I'd rather err on the earlier side than the late side. And, uh, like I said, is with all our soil types, I mean, this year you can definitely see the soil types out there and that's what's making it hard to combine on the soybean side. But, uh, on the corn, black layer. So right at black layer, if you can be, be dropping it in there. As I said, you know, black layers when they're snapping the ear corn and the chopper was running the same time the drones should have been running. Yeah, but, you know, we turned it, we let them go because I knew the manure trucks were coming right after that. And then uh, the neighbor ended up fencing that off and putting cattle on it. And when I was out there yesterday, it's almost beautiful out there. You know, nice green cover on the whole field. The cows out there grazing now and a uh, big pile of manure right in the middle. So that, that field's going to get a genuine treatment this year. 
and uh you know i got criticized a lot of people are like oh my gosh you're going back to corn and you're chopping it all off well when when you work with a feedlot that once needs to get rid of manure that's a fair trade any day you know we're selling air corn and most of it's going off as air corn you know they did this year they didn't harvest any whole plant silage off of my fields that might change next year but uh you know we're the deal we got worked out we're getting manure in trade and that so we're getting fertility back and removal rates pretty minimal but uh um, our next question is by holding off for now on bean harvest, are you concerned about too much green biomass causing harvest issues? No, the greener the better. I mean, I, I've harvested in six inch tall rye, and uh, you know, right now the tallest, even on the relay field, you know, that that's something we should probably talk about. You know, this is not going to be a poster child year for relay cropping. I mean, if it tells you how serious it got around here feedlot did uh, pull in with the chopper and made a couple swaths just to see what the feed value was on the relay field. But there was rain coming. You know, I mean, we did catch just enough rain. I think, you know, I, I put the $200 limit on there and the feedlot guy was offering me $150 an acre. And I just like, well, we're going to ride this out now. And we got rain. I was out in that field yesterday. You know, the covers look beautiful out there. That's probably some of the best looking cover crop rye we got right now but you know i i've cut beans into cereal rye that uh when you got done it smelled like you were mowing haylage and uh you know it looked like we mowed mowed a golf course that's one thing i would say i finally fell in love with the draper this year so i'm looking forward to cutting the relay beans we've always had the aerial and stuff like that you know last year after my combine burned up we did uh we did get a draper in to finish off, and I seen that that does work rather nice for the relay. And I got lucky last winter when I was buying the combine back, and ended up with a draper now. So that that'd be my sales pitch for a draper. <laughs> and, you know, I was I was adamant I needed aerial and all that stuff, and for what we all do. And I I would still say when we run, you know, if we run the draper for the rye. We might need that on for the blocker guards. It just makes them work better. But uh, you know, all the relay rye this year, we did harvest with the row crop head. So because the draper I did buy needed a lot more work than planned. And uh, my, my repair bill at John Deere this year is not going to be a pretty one. <laughs> and that, that's that's the sad part is normally I do all the maintenance and repair myself. Well, this year with my knees and that, I, you know, I, the one day it was bad enough, I had a hard time putting the PTO shaft on the head. And uh, you just, you don't have power in your legs. It's kind of hard to do stuff. Yeah, that's tough for sure. And obviously a factor to consider when you're thinking about all the other stuff you have going on too. But um, so what's some of the type of maintenance that need, that you were checking for and that you needed to do on the draper head before it was ready to go? Oh, the, <clears throat> the draper head, we found a lot of cracks and welds broke and then the whole uh, right-hand side just wasn't acting right and we found one of the major subframes was cracked and i guess i'm the point in life i want to if we're going to fix something we're going to fix it right and so it involved tearing the whole right hand side of the head off you know then we had everything working but you know we we seen this little window coming for the weather here so we hurry up i had john deere here the other night uh you know, prob probably the scariest thing on the combine we found so far is the parking brakes, or not the parking brakes, but the regular brakes. 
So the other night when I was I was on a, probably a 24, 25 degree slope and turning downhill and all of a sudden there's a wagon below me and the brakes go, oh, that could have been ugly. But, uh, you know, just them little things, you know, that them don't even show up on a pre-harvest. So, you know, it's my old combine. We had that thing maintained to fine tune. You know, I like going into season, know the machine's going to run all season without major hiccups or breakdowns. So we, you know, we probably spend a little more on repairs than your average person. But when you're doing them yourself, it's not near as hard, but uh, it is also refreshing to get an extra set of eyes in there to look at stuff. You know, the kid that normally used to help me do some shop work and that, he got married this summer, so he was a little unavailable. So I ended up getting John Deere in to do a lot. and. They did the full inspection. He did the inspection. They did the inspection. And then the day the neighbor came to grab my combine to go do his beans, all the first thing we see is a cracked belt. Oh, no. You know, so it's like, it, it's a machine. You're going to, you're just going to keep finding more stuff, but always be on the lookout even through the season. You know, then, then you can time your breakdowns versus having them major ones in season. And uh, like I said, we 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 try to catch all the belts. I mean, every day when a guy does a service, that you know, we we try to grease pretty religiously and stuff like that. And as you're doing that, just make sure your belts are all snug and you know look at them every time you're stopped or something. If you see a crack or something like that, it's a lot easier to take time when you know when you got time, not in the heat of the day bearings all well, bearings are going to go out whether they like it or not but uh you know if you if you got somebody that can take a pry bar and stuff like that and check a few things simple little thing to do go through and you know other thing we've always been pretty hard on is uh like on a rotor make sure you level your concave and stuff like that and makes it setting it a lot easier and a lot of times we're not afraid to change the grates or have the inserts or whatever we need to throw on there. That That's probably one of the things that, you know, I, I was trying to go away from the inserts on soybeans. I was going to go to a, a large wire for soybeans this year, but I didn't. And, and uh, I'll probably have them for next year. You know, we always ran the inserts. On a deer machine, you run them on three and four for when you got them green pods, and then it just helps clean up your sample and, and uh, like I said, feeder house chains, all that, go through that, check that, make sure your tension's right. So with the benefit of the large wire versus the grates, what is well, your... Traditionally, on a deer, you run the round bars, which works good for corner beans. For beans, we would always throw the inserts in there because that just gives you a little extra surface to thrash them green pods or the hard to thresh pods and that because that three and four is right where your return dumps. And then um, before we had enough acres of small grain, we'd move them to one and two. And that would do the same thing on your small grains. It just did get, you know, help create that mat. So you get grain on grain threshing and stuff like that early. And the sooner you can get it thrashed out in the rotor, the easier it's going to be to clean it and less damage and stuff like that. You know, we just cleaned out the rye bin the other day. And uh, according to what the trucker said, they said that was the cleanest rye they had all year. And the sad part is we windrowed, we we tried something, we liked organic field and then the uh, outside of the relay field, we uh, windrowed that this year because I wanted to do field maintenance around there. And uh, just as an experiment, 
and found out the kid that had that came and did all that he just had uh, the large wires or i think he had round bars and an older case ih machine and his sample was not exactly ideal oh but uh you know that that was the funny part i was apologizing for the dirty sample and here they're <laughs> they said it was clean you know because <laughs> gen generally sample. anything i seed for myself you know we know the seed we know where it came from weed free and all that so i'm not I'm not worried about running through a cleaner to keep the weed seed out. I mean, generally, majority of my seed would go directly in the drill. That's how clean we usually try to get our sample. And I've said that in the past, you know, when we're doing the relay and that, I'm not afraid to blow a little bit over like our cover crop. And uh, after a bit here, if we get time here, we'll go down and look in the relay field. You can see the nice cover that's coming already. And, uh, you know, you'd be amazed what a quarter bushel nature seeded in uh, end of July, first part of August can do versus fall drilling with the tillering and stuff like that. And, you know, but then, you know, that brings you to the seeding. You know, we're seeding generally so late. That's why we generally run higher seeding rates than like Europe and that would. You know, that's one of the things I've learned over the years. You know, we rely on about 10% tiller where Europe relies on 90% tillers, what people have told me over there. And when, when you're thinking about seed quality and that, that's something you definitely got to pay attention to. Because, you know, I've heard in the past people, oh gosh, you can drive on the cereal crop whenever, wherever. But it seems to me every time you drive on it, that's when them little things come around that uh, delayed maturity and stuff like that all shows up. And, you know, every everything we try to do on the relay and that, comes around to seed quality and uh you know that that's why we evolved to the twin row setup you know that came from the inner seating and stuff like that but that, that's why it's there so when you're seeding in july versus around this time how do you keep it from competing with the cash crop uh it just it, it's so you know cereal crop well winter rye or winter wheat until it vernalizes it won't go vertical so basically it's a ground cover. You know, like I said, it's a quarter, you know, every time we've done a count out there, it's a quarter bushel an acre. So it, it's it's not thick, but by the time, you know, now when it breaks canopy, now's when it's doing its tillering and stuff like that. You know, so now's, now's when it's filling out the canopy. And, uh, you know, by the time we harvest, it'll look like a lawn out there. Like I said, them, them are just little tidbits we've learned over there. The easiest cover crop to make pay is a volunteer one that you didn't pay for. <laughs> No, no seating expense, no nothing. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's, I, I would say that's probably the biggest, the biggest thing we've probably learned over the last couple of years is I've been kind of gearing up to where we're going now is I would call what we're doing low impact farming. And the less time and effort I can spend out in the field, the better. And, uh, you know, that that's where the drones and all that come in, you know, for, well, that five pound mix was caught with two T40s was costing me $13 an acre. I can run my drills for that, but not many people probably can. You know, but then you factor the time and the effort in there. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, I, I hear everybody hyping a return on investment anymore. And that's one of the things I keep thinking about. The, the most important investment most people don't factor in anymore is their time. Right. And, you know, you, you can figure return on investment on top on money but how do you figure it out on time and uh, 
you know, that, that that's getting to be the critical part for me, I guess. I, I'm to the point I want to be able to enjoy going doing other things. And at one point, the farm ran me. No, I, I get to run the farm for yeah. wherever I'm at. <laughs> that might be the best way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that's something that we are focused on a lot at No-Till Farmers, the ROI of making some of this stuff pan out. And something that comes to mind with that is, you know, you and I have talked about this before, and some of the people who are in our no-till discussion group have probably seen this, but last week we were talking about the ROI of a mix, a multi-species mix of cover crops versus a single species. Because there's a study going around that found the the soil health benefits of using a multi-species mix are either the same as or worse in most cases, according to the study, um, as using a single cover crop. But and Lauren, you've said that you haven't experienced that. In- well, I mean, it, when I read all the responses, it seems the farmers see it, but the researchers don't see it. Because, you know, they're the reductionist mindset, though a researcher, you break everything apart, but you don't factor in that symbiotic relationship or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I, I've talked to Jay Fear and all that. You know, I've heard about the Anna experiment, you know, our experiment over in Germany and all that. You know, we've seen it on our farm. And I guess the way I would put it is I'm not smart enough to know exactly what's going to grow where. You know, some of the testing I'm involved in, one of the coolest tests we ever did was uh, we did a weed seed bioassay, I think is what they called it. So they went in and counted exactly how many weed seeds are in a cubic foot of soil. When you're in the millions and you can look at them and you don't recognize, you know, I don't, I don't know how they ever counted them. <laughs> Cause you know, I took the sample and I, I didn't see a single seed in there, but they counted like two, three million oh my seeds per square foot or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then, you know, Nicole Masters talks about it a lot. And I've talked about that in the past, you know, when you got the succession chart and all that, and, you know, how many people have uh, dug up an old foundation? What's the first thing to come? Buttonweeds. Where the heck did they come from? You know, some of the buildings stood there for a hundred years, but that seed stayed there. Mm-hmm. And you know, what what triggered that to germinate now? You know, our our corn seed and bean seed's so dang delicate. If you don't caress it just right, it'll rot. But how do how do these some of these seeds survive? And you know, and I guess where I'm going with that is when you throw a mix out there. And, you know, last year we saw it really in the cover crop mix. We had three or four fields. We seeded a high biomass cover crop mix. Basically, I cleaned out my seed pile. would be what that was on three different fields where we bailed the straw off last year. Each field looked like it was a total different mix. What was really eye-opening is when you got to where a gap where there was no cereal rye, it looked, you know, you could see right to that little spot different seeds germinated there than elsewhere you know so hot you know if you start thinking about some of that stuff and you know that seed is there for a purpose and it's trying to you know something triggered that to grow and you know weeds are generally there to fix a problem i'm, I'm not smart enough to know all the answers on that stuff but you know the the yellow weeds are telling you one thing the blue weed you know the, you go by the blossom and that and you know i think yellow is yellow sulfur I forget what blue is, but I mean, that, that it's telling you what your soil wants and needs. We need more smart people like that to be talking that stuff. And 
I said, I, I was going down that path a while, but then I, I started remembering I'm better at iron and steel than I am <laughs> at some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, trying to figure that out. And like I said, the people are there. We just got to get them connected. You know, Nicole Masters is probably one of the better ones I've seen and heard on that stuff. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment. Yetter is your answer for success in the face of ever-changing production agriculture challenges. Yetter offers a full lineup of planter attachments designed to perform in varying planting conditions. Yetter products maximize your inputs, save you time, and deliver return on your investment. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. So when it comes to the multi-species mix, uh, what are you typically using? Um, how many different species? Because I know that multi-species can mean three, it can mean 15. Like, what does that look like for you? I would say the last couple of years, you know, when we were doing the interseeding corn and all that, we were getting pretty wild. I mean, we had to have up to 30 some seeds in our mix. And, you know, everybody's, oh my God, what are you spending on a seed mix? And the most I've ever spent on a mix like that is like $14, $15 an acre. And, you know, Jeremy Wilson in North Dakota probably has some of the best information on some of that. You know, he starts looking at seeds per square foot. And you got, if you're going to start doing some of this, that's where you really got to start looking. And, you know, ideally, you know, like in corn, we don't push the grass, you know, we might use annual ryegrass, but then, you know, that's cool season grass with the warm season grass. So we got that kind of covered. But uh, we would generally push the clovers and stuff like that, the legumes and that. You know, the brassicas, they're great, but you want to use very low use rates because they will smother out. You know, that's your warm season and cool season broadleafs right there. The clovers, and that would be your cool season. You got mixes in there. But uh, like I said, it's been a couple of years since I focused on that stuff. But uh, get a good seed guy would be my advice and start understanding the basic principles there. You want crisscross your warm season, cool season, your broadleafs and your grasses. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, but back to why we chose the seed mix we did this fall was just we were focused on the nematodes and that. So that's why we went heavy on the brassicas, not to, you know, and I know some people would say, well, geez, they're not mycorrhizal front friendly and all that. Well, if we're trying to solve a problem, we're going to have to bend a little bit. And, uh, you know, seeing what I've seen now, it's like, well, I should have probably threw a little annual ryegrass in there just so if, like, you know, if it was the dual or something, you know, that diversity probably, one of them plants could have probably did the work around on the dual or something. So, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out when I was out there scouting yesterday, I got zero rye popping where we didn't seed zero rye. So I don't know if it's a little carryover from the delayed termination on the CRI this spring, but it shouldn't be because we terminated majority of our rye early this year. So like I said, there, it's going to be interesting riding in the combines and what we actually have out there. So mm-hmm. we got two comments, one from Bob who says, I'd give you a big amen on the self-adapting but diverse cover crop mix. And then Keith says a bit late weeds and what they tell us is a nice primer. Yes. I said, and if I remember right, you had that guy speak at the conference there like two years ago, three years ago, something like that. You know, when I go to conference, that's the kind of people I'm going to be looking out for and listening to theirs. And 
And, uh, but I'm also getting to the point where I need that younger mind around here to answer some of them questions. Yeah. <laughs> Bat boy's getting lazy. <laughs> um, speaking of the conference, Lauren is one of our featured speakers at the 2024 National No Tillage Conference, which is January 9th through 12th in Indianapolis. So Lauren is going to be on the general session stage and in a classroom. So you want to give the good people here a preview of what you're going to be talking about? I think we turned that just in case you're not sick of me yet. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I think the big stage we're doing with uh, Jimmy Eumann's, uh Rick Clark and Jay Brent's going to join the three amigos on that one to uh, kind of honor Dave Brent a little bit. and. Uh, Hopefully we can recreate the magic we had there, was that two years, three years ago? I mean, and it'll kind of be the no holds barred approach again. I mean, we'll, we'll introduce, but uh, we, we like questions anymore. And uh, it, it's it's fun when you can get up there and help people and see them get them aha moments versus stand there and talk about a bunch of stuff nobody wants to listen to. <laughs> I guess that's why I looked at it anymore. I mean... Sorry, I'm I'm getting old and cranky. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that you're uh, putting the pressure on our other speakers. I think. Oh, just you know, I, I, that's that's the beauty of when you get people together like that. You know, push each other, and uh, you know that that was kind of how we stumbled upon that at Louisville that year. You know, the year before when we won the Innovator, there we did you know laid everything on the line the year before, and when you asked me back, it's like. I hate giving the same presentation twice. You know, once you've done it, if somebody wants to see it, go watch the video. And let's talk about what's relevant and neat, you know, what people want to talk about today. So that that, that was kind of the whole idea behind this series. Let's let's talk about what people want to talk about. And, and that, that that's kind of how I judge other speakers in that. Can can they ask the hard questions? And uh, but I'll also remind people I don't know is a viable answer. So mm-hmm. And, you know, that goes back to the first one of these did, you know, the first, I think the first question we had last spring was, you know, what cover crop mix should I use in Delaware? I don't know, but I know somebody that did know, and, you know, afterwards we, we, we connected the guy with uh, Jay Baxter out there and here they're 15 minutes away from each other. It's like, he got a lot better information than if I decided to be awesome. You know, and that, that's, that's the beauty of the network. Some of us have built together, you know, we, we trust each other and we'll help each other and, if you got a problem here, call the guy that actually knows that area. Um, Ron has a comment. Color of weed flowers. Tell us about our soil. Is that a um, question or a statement? Um, it's written as a statement, but if you would like to um, elaborate on maybe where someone might find resources, if you know. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to think of who who would actually be a good reference, but I mean, just uh, actually some of your gardening books and that is, you know, back when we were focused on that, that's kind of what took us down the the succession planning chart and all that stuff. And you know, if you if you really start thinking about the gardening aspect and where our cover crops not fit into that, I used to share a chart many years ago that showed you know the vegetables, what follows what, and how you should go and sequence and all that stuff it all came from gardening and then if you say well this plant's close to that cover crop and you know try to tie all that stuff together i know john kemp is a good source on a bunch of that stuff Klaus martins is the first guy that really beat me in on that okay and, uh Klaus is in new york organic farmer he was actually one of the focal points of uh the book the third plate by dan barber and uh 
I don't read many books, but the ones I do, I, I pay attention to. So Emily's got another question. What's this one? Um, she says, what was the herbicide and cover crop injury you saw the AI and species, I mean? Generic uh, duels is what I think we had out there. And uh, then with our brassicas and that, it seems we got a very poor, you know, according to what I've seen on the neighbors and one or two of my other, you know, even the relay field that had zero residual on the, the stand out there is phenomenal compared to what we're seeing. Maybe, maybe I'm overthinking it already. Maybe it's there, just all the leaves on top. I mean, we, we've got residue out in the bean fields right now that blew my mind when we were out there playing around yesterday. So, and, you know, maybe, maybe when it grows through that, but, you know, when you rake back the residue in that or go out there even before we harvest, I just don't see it like I did my neighbors. You know, either that or, you know, the other thing it could be is uh, our biology buried the seed. So maybe it's taken our seed a little longer to come up because it's actually in the soil. Mm. And, uh, you know, I can, I can go out in my field and just stick my hand down and probably get six inches without even trying very hard. Right now we're, you know, some of the fields we're in, as dry as it is right now, she's by rates pretty hard. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't spent much time out in the field with a shovel this year, but we, Farm Progress Show, we had a busload of Ukrainians come up here, and uh, that was the first time I dug any roots all year on the cornfield, and pretty cool when you got confidence in your soil, you can just go out and dig anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what I was hoping we were going to do today, because, you know, that that was the first day I kind of got comfortable thinking, hey, we might have a corn crop. You know, two weeks later they're out there chopping, and uh, the yield estimates on them fields was pretty 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 healthy. So, like I said, ten inches of moisture, and you know, probably the highlight for me is on corn we ended up on them fields we ended up at 0.35 and 0.36 pounds n per bushel this year. You can talk yield all you want, but when you talk efficiency of that. Mm -hmm. You know, Iowa State's still at the one pound per bushel, and we're down to 0 0.3, 0 0.5. And I mean, that's overall and applied. I'm hearing some of the other guys, oh gosh, we're lower than that. Well, then they factor in all the manure. That there was no manure on that field for three, four years. So, and that's all due to the cover crop. You think that you're able to get down? Well, that 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 was another another one of those little instances that was learning opportunity this year because. That field was supposed to get the, well, it was actually supposed to be a relay field and with everything that happened last fall, it just didn't happen. And then, you know, I, I called the audible there. We were going to spin everything on after harvest. Well, that didn't get done till March. And uh, the wild part is, you know, at, when I planted the corn that day, you could barely see the cover crop. It's there. I ain't worried about it. And, you know, non-GMO corn. So we went in there and uh, terminated when we put down our residual for the corn, well, then some more with the sporadic rains we were having, some more rye germinated after the herbicide was applied. We had a nice flush there. The only weeds we had when we applied the second pass herbicide was CRI, basically. And uh, then uh, fast forward, you, play, you were there when you seen all the fun we had planting this year. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we still don't have that figured out. But uh, wherever there was a little gap where the planter acted up, we had a very nice flush of rye. Absolutely no weeds, just nice smattering rye. But then, like the day I was out there with the Ukrainians, even though we didn't plan on interseeding this year, we had a nice interseed mix in there just with the rye. You know, it, it kind of self-terminated in the canopy, but the roots were there and 
the structures there and, and uh you know then after harvest that's what i'm trying to figure out now because that's the field we drilled for relay for next year but there's a nice healthy crop of volunteer or i'd call it volunteer now but it's what we spread in march coming through now okay so it's like huh maybe maybe we should be spreading rye in march you know, get some out there early, but spread some in March. You know, Aaron Silva's done a lot of that with the unvernalized rye, because it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, if if it doesn't vernalize, which is the first, you know, free saw, it'll just be ground cover. And you know, I'm going to watch that field come next spring. Now, like I said, that that might be why it doesn't end up rye, but uh, or as a relay field, because you know, if there's a good enough stand, I can't see my rows out there. It'll be entertaining. So. Yeah. <laughs> what about the symbiotic relationship with plants and soils, balance and soil microbes? Do you feel this is important? Definitely. Do I know why it's important? Definitely not. But, <laughs> you know, I, I've been around this game long enough. You know, and that, that well, the son-in-law the other day when he was right, you know, when I was showing him how, how to run that drill and that he started asking them questions. You know why we went down this path why why do we do this why do we do that and it's just you know my education comes from my elders you know like my dad was a dang good farmer but my grandparents actually were too you know so when i tried to learn and focus I, you know i always asked what grandpa would do because you know that's a lot of what my dad tried to learn and educate and you know we all talk cover crops now and how they're a fad but back then they were green manure you know, and if you know my history, we were heavy in the livestock up until 06. You know, we never grew a soybean until I think it was 08, the first time we grew soybeans. So we were heavy corn on corn. You know, and that, that's why we started with the interseeding and stuff like that. You know, I, I, I started in 06 when I kind of stumbled into that. You know, that was the path I kept hearing people talk about the diversity and stuff like that. That's why we started down that path. You know, I started reading, you know, the late 1800s, the University of Tennessee still has some of the best information on interceding in that. You know, I figured that was my avenue to get diversity into our mix. And I, I guess for me, it was as simple. You know, everybody talks about mimicking Mother Nature. Well, what is the tall grass prairie? Mm-hmm. Tall grass with the forbs underneath. And the forbs underneath is probably the most critical part. You know, the tall grass provide your biomass, but the diversity under there is what helps build the soil in my mind, you know, and that, and, you know, I've been criticized because we, you know, we tend to use a lot of lagoons and all that stuff, but when you got the high biomass and you start thinking about the carbon and nitrogen ratios and stuff like that, if you're going to feed it the high biomass, you got to have the nitrogen there too. And what's the best way to get nitrogen in the soil. And, you know, we're, we're pushing, we've got fields pushing six, 7% on organic matter now. You know, for me, come you know, I don't know if we even put any thought into what we're doing until I think it was 2012 when NRCS came out here the first time, wanting to do a training for Ray Archuleta was coming to Iowa the first time. And I'm not, you know, I, I tell, I'll tell this story to anybody. I still think that day I was going to be the whipping boy of what not to do, because my op- my home farm surrounds the office. But the people in the office never realized what was going on right across in the field. And, uh, you know, they asked if we would host them that day. They were going to go to a couple other sites and they wanted, 
you know, and I figured, you know, with us being corn on corn at that point, you know, we were the what not to do factor. And, you know, I, I tend to get a little sarcastic about a few things. And, you know, they, they did uh, soil health studies that time that took a lot of deciphering to understand. And, you know, that's how I got working with Jill Clapperton and that the way we did, because the Drager tube test and that, that they did, that was kind of the predecessor to the Solbita test and all that. You know, we started understanding our carbon, you know, CO2 exchange and that stuff. And, uh, you know, in 2012, we had fields that were blowing off the charts of Sobita already. And, you know, we got called into the office the next morning to do the review. And, uh, you know, they're like, you don't use anhydrous, do you? Well, at that point, we still were. And they, when they made that comment, I was like, well, Matter of fact, we do. And I said, if you really want to blow your mind, we use it spring and fall. It was at that time we were putting base right down the fall, and then we were side dressing in the spring. You know, split rate nitrogen back then already. And uh, then I go, how can that be? And the sarcastic side of me comes out. I was like, well, every fall I put out a sign-up sheet for the earthworms, and uh, to date <laughs> we've had no takers and they're like well what's the sign up sheet for and they're i was like well if the earthworms wanted a gas mask we would provide it <laughs> and, uh, you know but the, you know and that, that goes back to you know some of the preconceived notions and you know it, it's like back to the meta-analysis that you're talking about if you singular select one thing you can prove any point there's enough data out there you can make any point but you got to listen to reality in the farmers Farmer, you know, the farmer's going to vote with what's actually working, mm-hmm. and you know, and it's you know, back then I would I would defend anhydrous yet at that point until I you know because everybody's like, oh my god, anhydrous is killing your earthworms. Well, the Ohio State had research data, and I think it was Dave Brandt that helped me find it that time, that actually proved within six weeks of uh, anhydrous application you would actually end up with a net gain on your earthworms because mm-hmm. it provided such a new, you know, when you killed that zone with the anhydrous, it would provide such a nutrient wrench environment. The, the worms would just thrive and reproduce and you'd end up with a net gain within six weeks. So it was kind of hard to say, you know, and you had the argument always, you know, anhydrous is, you know, that's what they used in world war two to make runways. Well, if you started researching and learning the use rates, yeah. When you start talking, tanker loads per acre that's what the use rate they had it, it makes a difference you know and it what really finally got to me i think was john kemp the time when we started talking about it he started ex- explaining well the biggest thing in hydrus actually does to the soils it chemically changes the properties of the soil and liquefies the soil so here we're doing all this stuff to build soil structure and then we're using something that liquefies that was kind of my aha moment why we don't use anhydrous anymore. You know, but I understand why farmers still use it. I'm not going to condemn somebody for using it, but, you know, it's our job to help them understand them little hurdles. It's them baby steps that are going to help other guys, you know, versus the hard, fast rule. Continuing on the thought about the nitrogen, um, Emily says, love the nitrogen per bushel of corn focus. Which contest did a category for that? Can you share a little about what the big factors have been helping you get yours down so low? Luck. 
<laughs> How's that? I don't know. You know, that, that's the original plan this year. And, and I, guess, I guess I would say I'll credit, if I'm going to credit anything we did, it would be our adaptive management style. You know, we, we've backed off to everything is wide dropped anymore, if possible. And uh, we can time the nitrogen. You know, all this year, I thought we were actually a little too late. We were actually seeing a little nitrogen stress on corn, but it, it's kind of hard to get excited about putting nitrogen on corn when it's looking like it could be a disaster. You know, so we held off probably almost too late. But then the, there again, it looked like we were having a window. I called in the guy with the wide drop, got it in there. We snuck in uh, 90, 90 units, I think, is what we ended up at. And the uh, original plan was we were going to come in and put 30, 40 more units on late, depending on how the season went. Well, we never got rain. So it's like, sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend the money. And, uh, you know, when you, when you can start running 250, 260 corn on 90 units of nitrogen, you know, and some of that, I, I would attribute a lot of that, I think, is to the salt load. You know, salt takes water. Well, if you don't, if you're not putting the salts out there, you're not going to need that much extra water. And, that. Mm -hmm. and I mean, there, there's there's a lot of data out there on that stuff. And I mean, that that's you know, everybody wonders how we do what we do. Take your time doing it. I guess that's the biggest thing. You know, I used to be able to hide a lot more what we're doing, but now there's so many people around here, I can't hide a lot. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's everything. So it looks like it's fast forward to a lot of people. I'll get to our other two questions here. Um, asking, I may have missed how you're planting your relay, but are you planting a solid stand or row width of each crop? Someone I listen to is drilling the rye and then drilling the beans. Uh, what we've evolved to, you know, I'll go back to, you know, our interseeding setup is what kind of led to our relay crop setup. You know, every, I had the comment there for a while. How do you afford such nice equipment for doing what you do for no more acres when you farm? Well, we, we push it over a lot of acres, you know, back to 2015, six, you know, I think it was 14. We kind of, we stumbled upon the twin row setup for the interseeding and all that. And then all of a sudden, you know, that I think the year before is when I met John Coots and that and started seeing what he was doing. And I was like, huh, we got the same equipment, basically. We could do the, you know, we just had to figure out the harvest. But he had that kind of figured out already. And, uh, you know, that's why we went down the twin row setup for the relay and that. And it, the biggest thing the twin row setup allows us is room to maneuver with the combine, you know, my goal, as I said earlier, my goal is we're never going to drive on the cash crop. To make the bills around here, you've got to have seed quality if you're going to play the cereal rye and that stuff. And, uh, you know, we've, we've even got to the point where, as I alluded to earlier, we'll, we'll solid seed rye now and bale the straw off to make cash flow. But we've got pretty good, you know, if we can go seed quality and all that, we can compete even in a $400 an acre cash rent environment. You know, that, that's the other thing. I, when I hear a lot of people talk, they don't bring up, you know, if you're going to play a lot of these games, you've got to be able to make the rent. And, uh, you know, $50 rent somewhere else is a little different than $400 an acre. Rent. And, you know, corn is what sets the cash flow around here. And you better be able to compete with 250 corn anymore. You know, so there, like the other day, last Sunday, you know, the reason we backed away from winter wheat and that is just we we couldn't get the cereal crops in early enough. 
So we were down to pretty much winter Isura is was our option. Well, this year all of a sudden, you know, we seen a window and figured out how to get the corn off earlier. Boom, it's like, well, let's, you know, we're back to setting up the relay on corn acres where the last couple of years to get the rye in early enough, we were going, you know, running the relay on bean acres and uh, just trying to use them windows that Mother Nature throws at us. And then, uh, like the winter wheat we seeded the other day, that actually went on alfalfa. And, uh, you know, the landlord there wanted us to take them farms organic. And I use farms loosely on this. Because, you know, one one field is 0.47, one is 1.3, but one, one is 5 acres, and then the other is like 14, 15 acres. The reason I wanted them fields is the brewery we're working with, it'll set us up perfectly for isolation and stuff like that. So, hey, we got 0.47 acres of Rouge de Bordeaux wheat, and we've got uh, four acres of, uh, I'd have to ask Jay Brandt, Bantam or something like that. And then uh, the 1.5 is Red Fife. You know, that 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 was one of the projects Dave and I were working on before his passing is, you know, we want to start sharing genetics so we can back each other up mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, if we're going to start chasing these markets and that, that's been the biggest hurdle I've seen is trying to have a backup plan in case we have a crop failure or stuff like that and keep the genetics alive. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, and that, that played out this spring, you know, with my health issues, I knew I wasn't going to be able to plant my, you know, I didn't want to take the time and effort to plant corn, and, you know, so I was just going to back up with Dave and that's when the beers and all that came with Dave's corn and that it's like, this, this is going to work. And, you know, but now with Jay, we're going to try to keep that all going and keep working forward on that stuff. So. What do you do to support soil microbes? Uh, you mentioned cover crops. Is there anything else? Uh, that's one of those interesting avenues I was going to pursue this year, but I just, for me, build it and they will come. And, you know, go back to that 2012 when I told you about the NRCS and that, that was the first year we talked, tried a biological product. And every time we've ever tried one since, we've saw a yield reduction. Mm-hmm. That year and every time we've tried a biological pr- product since. Now, I'm very intrigued by the compost teas and all that stuff. I was, you know, I had some ordered this spring, but uh, when you got a bum knee and all that, I had knee surgery in February, I just like, yeah, we're done. Simplify everything. And, uh, I like it, but I want to see people show results, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a little worried a lot of people that are seeing great things out of it are utilizing legacy fertility and stuff. That's, you know, I want to watch like brands and that. I know they've been very limited. They're doing the IMOS and stuff like that. I think they've got a couple other ones they're trying. You know, I'm, I'm watching, you know, Rick Clark. I know he was doing some this year. I don't think he's seeing much for results. You know, the, 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 the guys that have been at it a while, if they, if, it starts working there, then I know it's the real deal. And uh, like I said, uh, I I think there's great potential, but I, I want to see the results. And, you know, when you've got the biological activity up there, you know, and everybody's like, well, what's your numbers? I don't test. You know, if somebody wants to run a test on our farm, 
long as they shared the data, come pull samples. We were doing quite a few Haney tests there for a while, and we always pulled them the end of May. You know, we, we'd pull, that would be my Memorial Day weekend. Monday, I'd go pull samples and send them in. So that was my consistency factor. You know, I, I want to pull a sample when it's warm and active. I would say if you're going to do some of that stuff, consistency is the key. You know, with that said, you know, we have, you know, this year with the dryness, we've seen a lot of K deficiency and stuff like that. Somebody give me answers on that. I'll, I'll be listening. And, yeah. Uh, to me, you know, some of that's a little, well, if we've got that nematode issue and that going on, I think that might be more of the problem than, the you know, because according to Haney test, not our fertility is there. It's just for some reason we weren't getting it in the plant. Well, if you got a nematode eating the rips off, would be why <laughs> that might be why so like i said i i try to bring things down to the simple level and you know well the, that was the fun part when the ukrainians were here they're like what level of education are you at and i'm like i barely graduated high school so that might be why my grammar sucks and my writing sucks and a few other things but this is kind of the last call for questions so uh get your questions in now um I'll mention once again that Lauren is going to be at the National No-Tillage Conference um, on the general session stage. And then we're doing essentially ask the operator in the classroom. So uh, bring your most out there questions and see what see what you get as an answer. Um, so I invite everybody to join us in Indianapolis this year in January. Um, you can go to notillconference.com to register and to see who's on the program. Oh, this is what it's about. You know, it's one thing to learn and know stuff, but to share it and help other people learn it is probably the most important thing, so. Thanks to Lauren Steinlogge for today's conversation. A video and transcript for this episode are available at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Lauren is taking your questions during a general session and classroom presentation at the 2024 National No-Tillage Conference in January. Go to notillconference.com to register and use code PODCAST when checking out to save $50. Many thanks to Yetter Farm Equipment for helping to make this No-Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Pauchner. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.